Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled An Eye Toward Improving Outcomes in DME, Timely Diagnosis and Reduced Treatment Burden with Longer-Acting Anti-VEGF Agents. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Hello, my name is Michael Singer, and I'm clinical professor of ophthalmology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio and director of clinical research at Medical Center Ophthalmology. I am excited that I have my good friend, Dr. Diana Doe, with me. I'm Diana Doe, professor of ophthalmology and vice chair of clinical affairs at the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford University School of Medicine. In the first session, we're going to talk about strategies to help us achieve a prompt accurate diagnosis of DME. Well, you need to start with, we got to talk about diabetes. The recommendation for eye schedule visits are different based on the type of diagnosis. If you're type 1, the AAO recommends the patient to have initial screening within five years and then have follow-up yearly. Type 2, it's a time of diagnosis and follow-up yearly. And pregnancy, either with type 1 or type 2, after conception and early in the first trimester. And then follow-up if the patient develops mild to moderate non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy every 3 to 12 months or severe non-proliferative retinopathy every 1 to 3 months. It's important to recognize whether or not they've got center-involved DME. If patients have center-involved DME, patients can be seen as often as monthly. If it's non-center-involved DME, patients can be seen every two to six months. If patients don't have DME, then it can be a little less frequent. Patients with proliferative diabetic retinopathy may be seen as often as every month, but if it's relatively quiescent, you may be able to extend to two to four months. And as they have severe non-proliferative disease, three to four months makes sense. Milder disease can be seen either every six to 12 months months or even annually. If we're looking at patients who have diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema, things we typically would ask them is, how long have you had diabetes? What's your hemoglobin A1C? What medications are you taking? What's your medical history, ocular history? And do you have a history of smoking? Because all these are risk factors in the prognosis of the development of this disease. When we talk about treating some of these people, people get a dilated fundus exam, visual acuity, slit lamp by microscopy, intraocular pressure, gonioscopy, and pupillary assessment for optic nerve dysfunction. And of course, we want to look at the peripheral retina. We have a number of ancillary tests in our armamentarium. Obviously, a lot of people use OCT, but there's also color fundus photography, fluorescein angiography, OCTA, which is OCT angiography, and B-scan ultrasonography. In your workup of your patients, how often do you do these tests, especially on presentation, and how does that change as you follow up people over time, Diana? Upon presentation, I routinely obtain optical coherence tomography of the central macular region. This is important because it's a non-invasive imaging test that can easily detect small amounts of diabetic macular edema. And that's important because it can be visually threatening and we have effective treatments for it. I've also found that wide-field fundus photography is also an excellent way to evaluate the peripheral retina and allows us to really scrutinize it for any signs of intraretinal hemorrhages. You also alluded, Michael, to fluorescein angiography. That imaging modality is very useful if we see patients with evidence of diabetic retinopathy and we want to assess the areas of vascular leakage or non-perfusion. 
I concur with what you're saying. Having an opportunity for patients to at least get color photos, photography, and fluorescein and geography, at least at baseline, gives you an understanding of the underlying perfusion status, which eventually may factor into our decisions as patients start to progress from non-proliferative retinopathy to both severe and proliferative retinopathy. In our next session, we're going to provide an overview of the guideline recommendations for appropriate therapies for patients with DME. In this second session, we'll provide an overview of guideline recommendations for appropriate therapies for patients with diabetic macular edema. There are three basic therapies that we treat our patients with center-involved DME. Intravitreal anti-VEGF injections are first-line treatment for these patients. Steroids alone in combination are considered second-line. And focal laser, which used to be the mainstay of treatment, is pretty much relegated for circinate rings that aren't involving the center of the macula. However, anti-VEGF has a cost, and it's a burden for both the patients and the caregivers. About a quarter of patients with DME discontinued therapy during the first two years, according to a retrospective trial. And there were studies that looked at patients in terms of the fact that their opportunity cost was very high, that an average patient who's being treated with diabetic macular edema has over 25 outpatient visits in a given year. And since outpatient visits are essentially work days, that adds up to close to six weeks worth of missed work for patients in this working age population. We did a study where we looked at CPT codes and we looked at patients who came in for injections for both wet AMD and DME, and it turns out the DME patients both canceled and no-showed more often than the patients with wet AMD. Diana, I work in a private practice, but you work in an academic institution. Do these numbers ring true to you? I think we have a shared experience both in your community and in the academic community that I work in. Diabetic retinopathy patients are usually younger, they're working age adults, and it's difficult for them to come back for frequent visits to the retina specialist. They have work schedules, they have other doctor appointments, and of course they have family obligations as well. And that's why the compliance with diabetic macular edema is much less than it is with other diseases. And that's a problem. Tom Chula has done some really interesting work looking at long-term real-world outcomes in patients by querying large electronic medical record system. He did some work on AMD and DME, and the original clinical trials, people got somewhere between 9 and 12 injections that had really good visual results. However, in real life, it's a little bit more messy. The wet AMD patients got 7.6 injections, and the DME patients got 6.2, and the median was 8 and 6. The wet AMD only gained 3.1 letters and DME only gained 4.7 letters. These numbers are a fraction of what was seen in the original studies looking at ranibizumab or aflibercept for both AMD and DME. Diana, these numbers ring true to you? And how do you try to encourage patients to keep their appointments to get better results? I think the data you just shared is a great in clinical practice in that Many of our patients do have suboptimal visual acuity outcomes because of the challenges with adherence. It's extremely important for ophthalmologists and retina specialists to educate their patients when starting anti-VEGF therapy about the importance of compliance and adherence to frequent visits and injections because the overwhelming data shows more injections leads to better vision outcomes with our current anti-VEGF agents. 
So it sounds like both you and I are both cheerleaders to keep our patients coming back, staying in clinic and receiving injections. So in the long term, they can get the closest chances of getting the optimal results that the clinical trial showed. Absolutely. In our next session, we're going to review the latest efficacy data for approved and emerging long-acting anti-VEGF agents. Currently, we have many treatment options available for patients with center-involved diabetic macular edema. In the clinic, we can routinely choose between bevacizumab, ranibizumab, brolacizumab, aflibercept 2 milligrams, or the recently FDA-approved aflibercept 8 milligrams. And finally, we also have verisumab. How does one choose among all these agents? I think one of the key factors we look at is not only the efficacy data, but also the durability data on how these medicines can be dosed in patients with these vision-threatening eye diseases. And most importantly, we also have to evaluate safety to determine if the benefit-to-risk ratio is favorable to our patients. In addition to anti-VEGF therapies, corticosteroids are also an effective treatment option for the eyes with diabetic macular edema. And many of these steroid implants can be delivered intravitrally as either bioerodible implant or a non-erodible implant that can have a longer duration of action. The Photon study was the pivotal clinical trial looking at aflibercept 8 milligrams compared to aflibercept 2 milligrams, and we see that both 8 milligram aflibercept doses, whether given every 12 weeks or every 16 weeks after three initial monthly injections, met the primary endpoint at week 48, and it was non-inferior to aflibercept 2 milligrams. But more importantly, we see that eyes that were dosed with 8 milligrams of aflibercept, the vast majority could be treated every 12 weeks or every 16 weeks. Michael, were you impressed with these data? I was. And I was really impressed that the high number of people could go both 12 or 16. And based on data you showed, even longer than that was a significant number. And again, treatment burden is a big deal. So if we can decrease the treatment burden, we might increase compliance. So I'm very excited about the possibility of having drugs like this in our arsenal. If we look at another agent, rolocizumab, this agent was also tested in clinical trials called the Kestrel and Kite studies, and it showed that rolocizumab was non-inferior to aflibercept in visual acuity outcomes. However, there were still safety issues with rolocizumab, specifically cases of intraocular inflammation and retinal vasculitis. Has this affected your use of rolocizumab, Michael? Absolutely. Although the drug is a very strong drying agent and has great potential, I'm less likely to use it than I was when we didn't have these second generation agents. Let's look at perisumab. This was also FDA approved and the pivotal clinical trials Yosemite and Rhine evaluated perisumab compared to aflibercept 2 milligrams. Perisumab met the primary endpoint and it was non-inferior in terms of visual acuity to aflibercept 2 milligrams. And the important fact with this clinical trial was that perisumab could be dosed less frequently and vision gains could be maintained with up to every 16-week dosing of verisimab. How do you decide between verisimab and aflibercept 8 milligrams in patients who come to your clinic, my home? 
because farisimab was out first, I've already have patients that are on farisimab. And although many of them have done very well, there are still some people who are not complete responders. And those will be the first patients that I will be looking to treat with 8 milligram aflibercept. In the next session, we'll summarize the safety evidence for approved and emerging long-acting anti-VEGF agents. In this fourth session, we'll summarize the safety evidence for anti-VEGF agents. Anti-VEGF agents are extremely effective for the treatment of diabetic macular edema, but it's also important to look at any safety issues related to both the intravitreal injection and the medicine itself. Of course, there are some common non-serious adverse events that can occur with any intravitreal injection, including hemorrhage, transient eye pain, floaters, or slight elevated intraocular pressure. As physicians and patients, we're always worried about severe adverse events, such as intraocular inflammation or endophthalmitis. Many of our approved anti-VEGF agents, aflibercept 2 milligrams, aflibercept 8 milligrams, ranibizumab, and farisumab, fortunately have had an excellent safety profile. However, we've also experienced severe ocular adverse events with brolicizumab, including increased levels of intraocular inflammation, retinal vasculitis, and occlusive retinal vasculitis. Michael, can you share with us how do you differentiate intraocular inflammation compared to endophthalmitis? Endophthalmitis typically presents a little bit earlier than intraocular inflammation. There were large studies that were done looking at big databases, and usually if you're going to get endophthalmitis, we typically notice it around day three. Intraocular inflammation is really closer to day eight. With the brolicizumab intraocular inflammation, this was a buildup over time. Most patients did not have it initially. But understanding when we look at these patients, you're going to dilate the patient up. You're going to see if they have white cells in the anterior chamber and the vitreous. You want to use steroids earlier if you think it's inflammation than if it's endophthalmitis. What I typically do when I'm looking at patients with endophthalmitis, I actually add dexamethasone to my mix of the antibiotics just to be on the safe side. But again, I think it's very important, depending on the time course, you should have both of them in your mind. But I think if it's earlier, I kind of hedge towards endophthalmitis. If it's a little later, I hedge towards intraocular inflammation. The good news, as you alluded to earlier, that the second generation medicines that we're using now, farisumab and 8 milligram aflibercept, have really good safety profiles that the risk of inflammation is much lower. And those, I'd be much more likely to think about endophthalmitis, especially if it presents early. Thank you for sharing those thoughts. In the next session, we'll discuss strategies to select appropriate therapy for patients with diabetic macular edema. In this fifth and final session, we're going to discuss strategies and select appropriate therapies for our patients with DME. Protocol T looked at a flibercept, ranimizumab, and bevacizumab, and what it showed was initially a flibercept seemed to be a stronger drug at year one versus ranibizumab or bevacizumab, but the differences between the three drugs seemed to narrow by year two. People with better vision, it really didn't make a difference what drug you used. Patients with worse vision, however, seemed to have a different favoring aflibercept initially. There was an early analysis which was done with protocol I that was repeated with protocol T. 25% of patients were not able to achieve amazing visual responses. They pretty much stayed between zero to five letters. It makes you think about other drugs with other mechanisms of action. 
And that's where steroids potentially have a place. The dexamethasone implant, which was approved, was shown in the reinforced study. And in combination or alone, almost 50% of people could get away with one supplemental treatment. Over time, using the dex implant, although very good, you still have a treatment burden because it lasts about three months on average. That's when the flucinolone implant potentially has value. And the Paladin study showed that 25% of people treated with flucinolone implant did not need rescue therapy over a three-year period of time. This is all very interesting, but we do have second-generation medications. And Diana wanted to explain to how they play into our treatment paradigm going forward. Recall that in the photon pivotal clinical trial, a flibercept 8 milligrams was non-inferior to a flibercept 2 milligrams. But more importantly, the vast majority of patients, 89%, could be dosed every 12 weeks or greater with a flibercept 8 milligrams over a two-year period while maintaining excellent visual acuity outcomes. In addition, 84% of a flibercept 8 milligram treated eyes were able to be dosed every 16 weeks for the two-year period, which could signal a more durable agent option for our patients. Brisimab showed in phase 3 randomized clinical trials that it was non-inferior to a flibercept 2 milligrams. But more importantly, verisimab also had extended durability, and patients could be dosed every 8 weeks, every 12 weeks, or every 16 weeks through 2 years. Michael, this is exciting data. Are you thinking about using either a flibercept 8 milligrams or verisimab in your patients with diabetic macular edema? So I have already incorporated furisumab because I currently have access to it in my patients with diabetic macular edema. What I've learned is by using furisumab, and I'm going to probably be able to incorporate this into 8 milligram as well, I used to extend people every two weeks. What I've done now is I extend people every two weeks until two months, and I realize if people are going to end up having breakthrough fluid, they're going to have it earlier rather than later. So after two months, I'm much more likely to extend them by four weeks for 12 weeks or 16 weeks. And for a large number of patients, this seems to do the trick. Obviously, there are patients that still are high need on furisumab, and I'm excited to see where 8 milligrams is going to fit in that paradigm. I totally agree with you. It's been great discussing how our clinical practice is going to change over the next year with both aflibercept 8 milligrams, furisumab, and all of our current anti-VEGF agents. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us for this discussion. I look forward to future programs with you. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.